0: Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it's a statute for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 81, which along with Psalm 82 are the Psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, June the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are uh, continuing to look in, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 11, verses 24 to 35, in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 9, and then in the Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 11. So remember what we had yesterday with um, with Moses going making a complaint to the lord because the people complain to him because they're tired of the manna and then moses makes a complaint to the lord that he can't carry this people that they're god's people And he needs help, and so God tells him, "Take some of the elders, and I'll put my spirit on them, and um, they'll they'll help you with this." And it's really difficult to tell whether this is a retelling at some level of what happens in Exodus eighteen when Jethro comes prior to the uh, giving of the law at Sinai and says, "You need help. It's not good for you to do this. It's not good for you, and it's not good for the people." Here we get it in the context of Moses complaining about the burden that's been placed upon him by God, and and. So he went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of Israel and placed them around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So the the point of that is to say that the proof that the Spirit of God was on them was this prophecy that they did, but they didn't continue to be prophets, is what it's saying. It is the Spirit was for something else, that ultimately the Spirit that manifested as prophetic initially ends up being, yes, God God raised them up to lead. Now two men, besides the 70, remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them as well. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. So the Lord said, you know, I have others that I want to bring in here that you didn't choose, and it's sort of a foreshadowing of David, for instance, being chosen to be the leader of the people when nobody expected that he would be, but it's also something that Jesus talks about when he says, I have other sheep, not of this flock, that I have to bring in. And it's, you see it again and again and again throughout Scripture that God isn't bound by what we do, and so he chooses whom he chooses. And so we get these two men, Eldad and Medad, who now have exactly that same gift, so they are clearly leaders as well, even though they didn't come. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, but the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And so Moses is not trying to say, I want to hoard all this for myself. I'm not looking to be that guy. That's not why I'm here. I'm here because God chose me to do this work. But that, that doesn't mean that that's where I take my identity. It doesn't bother me that other people have been chosen and gifted by the Lord. And it's, a, it's the attitude we all need to take about things, right? We need to always be welcoming to those whom God has chosen and not not in jealousy reject them in any shape, form, or fashion. Certainly seen that happen in a church again and again and again. People have their ministry. Well, it's not your ministry. <laughs> it's the ministry that God gave and, it, and it's so it's something that he gives as a gracious gift, not something for you to be self-aggrandizing about. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up. <clears throat> so we, we, we've now established the elders and it, it's interrupted this story about God saying, I'm going to give you meat. Um, it, it's an odd place for it. But at the same time, it's a place where Moses is under a lot of uh, stress because these people are coming after him. Because they want meat. I mean, you can just see it, almost a, a, a group of school kids banging their utensils on the table saying, we want meat, we want meat. So that's exactly what's happened, happened here. And, and so in the midst of that, though, we get this story about the 70 elders, or 72, really. <clears throat> then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side. So how far is that? Well, a day's journey in biblical times, was considered to be about 20 to 25 miles. So on both sides, on, on either side, around the camp at about two cubits above the ground. So they're, they're let's say, 50 miles. It could be, you know, it, it could be 100 miles if you go front, back, left, and right. But, so it could be that, but it's three feet deep. So you've got all these quail laying there, and the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day. And gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And a homer is about six bushels. So 60 bushels for the people who gathered the least. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, so it's in their mouth but not in their bellies yet, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibrath Hatavah which means graves of craving, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatavah, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. It's, it's an awful sort of a thing, but he, he gave them the fulfillment of their craving, but, but the problem wasn't the craving. It was the craving of something other than what God had provided. So they had despised the provision of God. And we do that today. We can do that today with with turning away from Jesus and wanting some other way of salvation. And that's rejecting God's good provision in order to have something else. And so that rejection brings upon itself uh, a depraved mind seeking after something other than what God wanted, and then it brings judgment ultimately. Because you've rejected God's provision and his way of having eternal life. And you see that in the uh, parable that Jesus tells about the wedding banquet where, where nobody who's invited comes. They're compelled to go out then and bring others in. And then when he comes in to the banquet, there's one there who's refused to put on the wedding garment that was provided for him. But he chose not to do it, and so that one's cast out into outer darkness as well. And that's exactly what's happening in, in this story, is is that that it's not the craving so much, it's a craving for something other than God's provision. In Matthew's gospel today, what we see is the disciples come to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? I mean, this is right after, right? Right after the transfiguration and right after their inability to to cast out the demon that was in the man's child. That, that was causing the seizures. And so they said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's Jesus. I mean <laughs> that's a simple answer. And calling cause but what it's showing is that they, they want greatness in a way that Moses never sought it. And that's the reason that Moses that it can be said in, in the Torah that Moses was more humble than any man on earth. He was properly humble before God. He understood God to be the one who was in charge of all things and greatness came from simple obedience. So it, it. They ask, "Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And he called a child to them. He put them in the midst of them and said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven." The word "turn" there is um, translated a, as as convert in the King James version, but it's it's literally the same word that when Jesus turns to Peter. So it's 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 literally a, a, a turning away from something, and, and what he's saying to them there is, is that that you're talking about greatness. And I'm telling you that unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It has nothing to do with greatness. No, you've got to be meek and humble. you got to be teachable. you got to be something other than what you're seeking. You've misunderstood greatness completely. And he's telling them, you got to turn away from your way of thinking. And it's, again, it's what Paul says when he talks about being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling them. you think in the wrong way, guys. You're thinking in a a worldly way, not a, a kingdom of God way. So don't worry about being great. Worry about even entering the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So greatness has a different definition in the kingdom of heaven than it does in the kingdom of man. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. When AMIA was first started, one of the things we had to do for every single church had to, if you were going to work with children in any shape, form, or fashion, then you had to take um, a class called Avoiding the Millstone. And so it was important that everybody that worked with children have that. And anybody you paid to work with children, we had to have a report on you. We had to do a background check. And it's important that we protect our children. And the problem is, in the society today, we're not doing that very well. We're exposing our children to things they they don't have the capacity at their age to deal with, to understand, and to sort through truth. They, they don't have that in them, and so what's happening is that, that we've got an educational establishment in the United States who, who is attempting to, to, to groom our children and to teach them their, quote, morality, which is immorality, and so we, as the church, have to say no to that, and I don't know exactly what that might mean for you or for your family, but, but we can't allow that. We are the ones who have been charged with and gifted with these children. And so it's important that we be the ones who determine their moral teaching, not the school system, not the educational establishment, because that's not their goal. But we are culpable in the sense that we cooperate with that. And so we can be deemed to have been those who lead them into sin by not being involved in their education and not making sure that they're not being trained to accept things that the Bible has said no to. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come in order that we would develop a strong moral character and that we would have the resolve to know what's right and what's wrong, and and that we would become strong by that, by saying no to temptation. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like grace. It sounds like I need to be ruthless about sin. Well, I thought Jesus took all my sins on the cross. He did, and you do have to be ruthless about sin in your life. He wants people to bear his image to the world. And that means people who can say no to sin and yes, joyously to God's law, which form the boundaries of our lives. And and he wants us to be a peculiar people, not a bunch of people who, who are saying, "Ah, it's all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace. It's not all grace. Everything starts with grace, And everything always will end with grace. But in the meantime, in life, you have an obligation and a responsibility to become a person like Jesus. And you can only do that by saying no to sin and yes to God's way in the Romans passage, remember yesterday, he talked about some things and said, if you if you deny the evidence God's provided you in creation, then it will lead you into immorality. And then he talks for three verses here that we don't see about sexual immorality. And so what Paul's doing is is he's holding up there a biblical ethic for sexual expression, and that is within the Bounds, bounds and confines of marriage between a man and a woman, just exactly like Jesus pointed to when they talked about divorce, when they asked him a question about divorce. He pointed back to Genesis 2, where it says a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That, that, that's only evidence of a man and a woman. When he does other sexual teaching, he suggests that to lust after a woman in your heart, is to commit adultery. Well, he didn't countenance anything other than a man lusting after a woman. So that we've got to be clear on that. But if we skip three verses for some bizarre reason that talks about other sexual expressions that Paul says are wrong and, and are a product of a depraved mind, then what are we being taught by the church that, that tells us to skip those verses? So he says, since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And I just told you what that was. It was sexual immorality specifically between men and men and women and women. That's exactly what the context is of ought not to be done. They were, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So they were filled with that, and they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And he says th- those things are an expression. They come after <laughs> that debased mind. He says that, that happens after that. That's the first step, he says, is sexual immorality, and, and we, boy, can we see that in our society today. I mean, it, the, the Roman Catholic Church will look at the Anglican Church and say they're the problem in the world, and, and, the, and, the, and when I say the Anglican Church, I mean the Church of England, literally, because what they said is, is that, that the, when the Church of England said yes to birth control, then the floodgates were opened, because sex no longer had to be confined to and, and you know, it, was, it was never fully confined, obviously, to marriage between a man and a woman, but, but what it did was it allowed sex outside of that without penalty of pregnancy, you know, that, that, that it didn't have to come to that, so you could avoid it. And then that became then, okay, of abortion, and then it became all these other things. And, and Paul says it starts with sex and then moves from there. And if you look at the 60s, that's exactly where it started but then everything else comes from that because you've turned away from him and you turned away from the evidence that he gives and you turned away from his way and then everything else then follows. And that's how you get this incredible list that he gives here. Though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die, that they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And yes, if you follow any debate on sexual stuff on Twitter, holy moly there's there's not there's no place to say no anymore you know they said well okay if we do this then it won't become that well it did and it has and it will and we're and we're pushing it down now so that that we're teaching children that these things are okay and that they they can question their uh gender and they can actually make decisions to change it in spite of the fact they can't enter into for instance a contract to do anything until they're 18 years old but now we allow them to take drastic steps to alter their personal identities and their gender identities because at five they feel like, well, I'm, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. It's, it's absolutely amazing the depth of depravity to which we have sunk over the last 10 years even. It's crazy. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So people who want to talk about Paul you know, changing the, the way we should think about things from works to faith, no, Paul says it begins with faith, but then it shows forth in works, because he's talking about those who practice these things, and that's the important part you can be tempted, but practicing it is the problem. If you have a, a, a you know an internal disposition, for instance, to a particular sin, then then the problem isn't that disposition. The problem is the practice. He says, and so you can see faith by what we observe in your practice. Don't do you suppose, O men, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? No, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, which would be grace? I mean, that's exactly what he's talking about here. Do you presume on those things, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It ultimately comes down to conduct and character. That yes, you receive grace, but there's a reason you receive grace, and that's so it'll lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He'll render to each one according to his works. Because works prove faith. Just exactly what James says and what John says. You can't love, you can't love God if you, who you can't see unless you love your neighbor. I mean, that's the proof that you love God, at least some portion. Or maybe it's the proof you don't love God is that you don't love your neighbor who's created in his image. He says, so he'll render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. So if you're seeking the kingdom of God and, and you're diligently doing so in your life, then you'll get that reward. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, in other words, if you want all your pleasure now, if you want to have your best life now, well, then you're going in the wrong direction. He says, and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury because we're showing who is Lord of our lives by what we obey. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So he makes no distinction between Jews and Greeks. It'll come first for the Jew, judgment will, because they've been in that covenant is what he's saying. But then judgment ultimately comes for everybody. And it's important that that we understand these messages today. It's important that we understand that craving is a problem, but it's, it's only a problem if we're craving what God said no to. As long as we crave what God said yes to, we will be blessed, and we will be blessed mightily.